I don't know if any of you are into reading biographies. Uh, I've read a few in my time, not just the Christian ones. It can be tempting I just to read uh, biographies of Christians. But uh, over the years, I've done things like read a uh, biography of William Pitt the Younger. That was a really good one. Uh, Napoleon. Uh, and others of, of, of sort of historical interest uh, down through the years. And uh, as you read those books, you notice that there are stories devoted to uh, their childhood, uh, to their achievements, to their life story. And then you get about a page at the end, don't you, sort of explaining how they died and uh, how that all came about. Uh, sort of a page in a, a big long book devoted to their death. Well, the Gospels are very different. Some people have called them thanographies rather than biographies. You know, bio meaning life, uh, thano coming from the word for death. The story of Jesus' death is really what the Gospels, in a way, are telling rather than his life. Uh, Mark's Gospel, for example, has been called Jesus' death with a prologue. It's as though that's really what the book is about, and it's just got an introduction at the beginning. And John is no different. In chapters 13 to 19, we're literally told the hours that lead up to Jesus' death. It's the night before and the day uh, of his death, from 13 to 19. That's seven chapters out of 21 chapters. That's a third of his book. is devoted just to the hours before Jesus' death, let alone the weeks uh, that go before it. And this week, as we come to this passage in John 19, we actually get to the, the end of it, if you like. We get to Jesus' death. Jesus dies. But more than the fact of Jesus' death, John wants us to see the significance of Jesus' death. That's why he's taking so much time to, to pause and show us so closely uh, what is going on. So what do we see? Well, the first thing we see this morning is that the sacrifice is complete. Let me read to you again, verses 28 uh, to 30. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Here we see the final moments of Jesus' life. He's thirsty and is given a drink of sour wine or or vinegar uh, to drink. Now that sounds a little bit bizarre, giving someone vinegar. You might think it sounds cruel. But actually there was a common drink among Roman soldiers. They used to sort of water down uh, sour wine, water down uh, vinegar and drink it. I suppose in a way it's no more weird than our sort of uh, drinking of stout or bitter. You might not think that's an obvious choice of of drink. But this is what uh, they would regularly drink. So it's not weird that there's uh, sour wine nearby. But what it does is fulfill uh, another Davidic psalm. We saw last week that Jesus uh, was fulfilling these psalms of David. Well, this is Psalm 69, verse 21. You'll find it on the back of your notice sheets. They gave me poison for food. And for my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink. That word sour wine is exactly the word that's used, but it it wasn't common for Jews to drink this. It was a a Roman drink, really. But it's a reminder that Jesus is dying as that suffering Davidic king that we saw last week. It's a reminder that he's fulfilling uh, all these Psalms of David, which show David not just as the glorious king, but as the suffering king. And as Jesus dies, he cries, It is finished. Uh, These are some of the most famous words in the Bible, aren't they? But what is finished? What is he talking about? Is it his life on earth? 
Is it his crucifixion? Well, they're both certainly true, aren't they? Though, of course, he'll resume his life uh, as he uh, is resurrected. But the word finished is a bit stronger than just that something is done. Uh, It means completed, come to its goal, mission accomplished. It doesn't just mean that something is over. It means that something is completed. So, for example, you might like jigsaws. I don't know uh, if you like jigsaws or not. I know some of you do. You know, you might say, oh, I've finished with this jigsaw. Now, that might be because it's so hard that, you, you know, you've got one of those impossible puzzle ones that are, you know, a kind of beans or something. Um, and you just, I'm, I'm, it's over. It's done. And you might not finish it. Uh, you might just leave it. But it, it's not like that. It's actually now like, I finished this jigsaw rather than I finished with this jigsaw. Jesus is saying he's completed something. He's done something. What has he finished? Well, he's finished, he's completed the work of dying for his people. He's completed his sacrifice. He's done what he came to do. As it was announced at the beginning of John, the Lamb of God that comes to take away the sin of the world, well, that's now completed. That's finished. And we want to see really exactly what that means. Well, the rest of the passage shows us exactly what that sacrifice was. What was Jesus doing? And we see there, first of all, the Passover lamb is given up. Let me read to you verses 31 uh, to 34. Since it was a day of preparation, and so the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken, and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus... And saw that he was already dead. They did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear. And at once there came out blood and water. And then just down to verse 36. These things uh, took place so that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. Here we find the details of what happened to Jesus after he died. The Jews here are concerned that the bodies aren't left hanging there on the Sabbath. Uh, probably due to the, the land being desecrated by there being dead bodies hung there. Uh, so Deuteronomy 21, 23, uh, again on the back of your notice sheets. His body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him on the same day, for a hanged man is cursed by God. You shall not defile the land that the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. So the idea was here that the land would be defiled by the presence of a, 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 a hung person, hanging there overnight. Now, clearly, this is not the normal thing that they would do. They were quite happy for bodies to hang on the cross for several days. But because it's the Sabbath, they want it brought down. It's very fitting, isn't it, if you think about the stories through John's Gospel and through the Gospels, that desecrating the Sabbath has been one of these contentious issues that the Jews had with Jesus. It's not so much they're worried about crucifying a sinful man, but they are worried about his body being hung there on the Sabbath. That's, that's the craziness of the way that they're thinking. So Pilate presumably gives permission and the soldiers are sent out to hasten the death of this condemned man. Now the usual practice to do this was to break their legs. Uh, death on the cross was usually brought about by asphyxiation. The weight of the body at the angle that it was at would sort of strangle them with its own weight. And the time on the cross that they were alive depended on how long they could keep themselves up and not asphyxiated. 
And much of the bulk of that weight was placed on the legs to sort of hold themselves up. So to hasten the death, their legs would be broken. And it wouldn't be long after then that they would asphyxiate, that they wouldn't be able to breathe anymore. That added to the physical trauma of having your legs broken. So this is what happens to the two men that are crucified next to Jesus. But when they come to Jesus, they find that he's already dead. There was no need to break his legs. So in an apparent attempt to confirm that he really was dead, one of the soldiers takes a spear and pierces his side. Blood and water, fluid, pours out. Now I'm not a medical expert, um, but the water present, it's not normal when you stab someone that water comes out, is it? But the water seems to be there, or the fluid seems to be there, due to something called hypovolemic shock. It occurs when your body loses more than a fifth of its blood. And bearing under mind the, uh, bearing in mind the, the beating that Jesus had gone through before this, it's understandable. It, it means that the heart begins to collect fluid around itself due to it sort of struggling to pump a lower amount of blood around the body. It's like a giant blister around the heart, if you like. And something similar happens with the lungs. And it's normally accompanied, accompanied, <laughs> accompanies um, with an insatiable thirst, which seems to fit with what Jesus has just been uh, saying. So the fact that water and blood come out seems to point to the fact that the spear pierced the lungs or the heart, certainly into the cavity of the chest. We're not talking about a little scratch here. He was beyond doubt confirming that he was dead. And John tells us that he saw all this. He's adamant that this is what happened. Jesus really was dead. But as we've come to expect with John, more is going on than just proving that Jesus actually died. John is trying to show us something about who Jesus was and why it matters that he died. So something here that God has woven into the very fabric of the events to help us understand the significance of what's going on. And what John is trying to show us is that Jesus is the ultimate Passover lamb. And as proof of that, he gives us a quote uh, there uh, at the end. You see it in verse 36. Not one of his bones will be broken. That quote comes from Numbers chapter 9, verse 12. So they shall leave none of it till morning, nor break any of its bones. According to the statute for the Passover, they shall keep it. What's that, what's that talking about? Well, it's talking about the Passover lamb. It's talking about the lamb that they were to sacrifice to remember the Passover. The same was true of the lamb that they actually sacrificed for the Passover. And it states that the Passover lamb must not have any of its bones broken, and that none of it should be left until morning. Well, isn't that exactly what we've just seen? Jesus' bones left intact, even though they should have been broken, that was the way that they normally would hasten it. Jesus' body not being left until morning, but taken down from the cross. And on top of all this, there's the timing that John gives us of these events. Jesus died during the Passover festival. And not just that, on the very day that the Passover lambs were sacrificed, around the time that the Passover lambs were sacrificed. And it's not just John that thinks this. All the gospel writers have Jesus dying at Passover. The other gospel writers have Jesus applying their great Passover meal to himself. Intriguingly, without the lamb. Where is the lamb? Well, the lamb is there on the cross, isn't he? The Apostle Paul is even more explicit. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7. At the end of that verse, 
For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. So Paul even calls Jesus our Passover lamb. You can't get more direct than that, can you, really? But there's still that perennial question, well, so what? So Jesus is saying he's a Passover lamb, so John is saying he's a Passover lamb. Well, John is inviting us, again, to make connections between the events that he's describing and the events that are happening there in the Old Testament. Think about the Passover lamb that God has put there as a picture of his son. The Passover lamb was to be spotless, without a blemish, without stain. He was to be pure. The Passover lamb was to be a son. I don't know if you ever thought about it that way. The lamb was to be a year old and a male. Now again, I'm not an expert in sheep. I sort of wish I had David Harrison here this morning. But the idea is the sheep wouldn't be very old. Actually, they would be young. The identity of it would be a son. It, it wouldn't be a mother or a father or a daughter, but a son as a lamb. And it was also a sacrifice in place of the firstborn son. If you like, all the way through the Old Testament, we see this default wrath mechanism, if you like, that God employs of judging the firstborn son. So when he brings his anger on Egypt, who does he kill? The firstborn son uh, of all the houses in Egypt. But with Jesus, our Passover lamb, it was the firstborn son that takes the punishment, that God pours out his punishment on. So we also see that the lamb was to be a sacrifice to avert God's judgment on them. I don't know if you've ever thought about the Passover in this way, but have you ever wondered why the Israelites had to do this at all? Some of the other uh, plagues that God brings, he he just brings them on the Egyptians and doesn't bring them uh, on the Israelites, just decides not to. Couldn't God have just passed over them anyway? But when God pulls out his judgment in this way, it's on all guilty parties. Because God is just. So if God had not provided a Passover lamb, well then it would have been poured out on Israel too, wouldn't it? Let's not be naive as we read the Exodus story. The Egyptians and the Israelites are just as guilty as each other. It was not that there were goodies and there were baddies. Both sides were sinful human beings. But so that God could punish one side and not the other, actually his judgment had to fall elsewhere. That was what the Passover lamb was there for. The Passover lamb was a rescue given by God to rescue God's own people from God's own judgment. And the same is true of Christ. Christ's death on the cross was a rescue given by God to rescue God's own people from God's own judgment. Christ was dying for sinful human beings like you and me, taking the punishment that should have fallen on us legitimately. We also see with the Passover lamb that the blood of the Passover lamb had to be, uh, so the body of the Passover lamb had to be eaten and its blood put on the doorposts and lintel of the house. That points us to something powerful as well as we think about the two. It wasn't enough that the Passover lamb died. I'll put enough in inverted commas. It wasn't enough that the Passover lamb died. That death had to be applied to each house. The death was useless to them unless they put the blood on the doorposts of their home. And the same is true of Christ, isn't it? Our Passover lamb. His death is no value to us unless we apply that blood to our lives. His death will be of no value unless we feed on Christ. Jesus himself used this same imagery 
uh, John chapter 6, verses 53 to 56. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks on my uh, and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. It's quite strong words, isn't it? In fact, this causes loads of people to stop following Jesus. What does it look like for us? Well, it's not taking the Lord's Supper. That's not what Jesus is talking about. Though the Lord's Supper is a picture of that. It's a picture of daily trust in Christ. Just before, in that same passage, Jesus says something really similar. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. Well, here he's just said, whoever feeds on me has eternal life. So he's drawing a parallel between those two things. It's two ways of saying the same thing. You see, just as the Israelites had to trust the blood to save them, so we must trust the blood to save us. So the question the Israelites had to ask was not, am I better than an Egyptian? But has a lamb been sacrificed? Have I put its blood on my doorposts? Have I eaten its flesh? In those homes, if you think about it, that had blood on the doorposts were were liars, were cheats, were scoundrels, were thieves. But none of that counted for anything if the blood was on the doorpost. And so too with us, we must ask ourselves the question, not, not am I better than the world outside, but has the Lamb of God been sacrificed? Am I trusting in that blood to make me clean? Do I feed on Christ by faith as I trust him daily with my life and my eternal life? And friends, the blood of Christ has been shed for liars, for cheats, for scoundrels, for thieves and worse. But what God cares about is this. Is the blood there? Can I pass over this person because blood has already been shed? And if the answer to that is yes, then we're safe. Because the blood of somebody else has been shed for us. So God has given us his son as our Passover lamb. Will you waste that sacrifice by not applying it to your life? Will you insult his sacrifice by believing that you're beyond his ability to save? That goes for believers and non-believers alike. Jesus' blood is enough. And to answer why he's enough, well, we find out that in verse 37, the Passover lamb is God himself. Let me read to you verse 37. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. The first quotation was from the law. Well, this quotation is from the prophets. Zechariah 12, uh, verse 10. Uh, I thought I'd got, yeah, there we go. Um, if you want to open that up, Zechariah 12, uh, verses 7 to, to 10, just to give us a bit of uh, context. The page numbers are up there on the screen. This is where the quote comes from that we've got written there. Zechariah 12, verse 7. And the Lord will give salvation to the tents of Judah first, that the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem may not surpass that of Judah. On that day, the Lord will protect the inhabitants of Jerusalem, 
so that the feeblest among them shall be like David, and the house of David shall be like God, like the angel of the Lord going before them. And on that day I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. And I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps for a firstborn. You see, here we have this quote about the one who is pierced. And it seems as though it's just referring to the spear going into his side. But we need to think through what what it's actually saying in the original context. As John quotes this, he knows what he's quoting. He wants you to think about what's being said there. The one who is pierced here is God himself. See that there in verse 10? They will look on me, on him whom they have pierced. And how will they mourn the one that they've pierced? Well, as for an only child. As for a firstborn. Do you see the links, the connections between what we're seeing? This firstborn idea again? Well, can this be any other than Jesus? And not only that, it points us back to the Passover again, doesn't it? What are they doing? Weeping for the firstborn. That's what we see in the houses of Egypt as the angel of death took away the firstborns. It's saying here, as this one dies, they'll weep like the Egyptians at Passover. As the firstborn son, his one and only son, is slain. As God substitutes himself for his people. And this is the only way it works, isn't it, in the bigger picture as we think about the Passover lamb. If this was just a man that was pierced, if this was just a person dying on the cross, however special, how on earth could his death be sufficient for all people, for all his people? I mean, think about it. There were a million uh, people that left Egypt about, we reckon. How many lambs had to be slain for all those households? Think of the thousands, hundreds of thousands of lambs that were slain, probably. And that was just for them to live one night. That was for them just to survive, if you like. What would it take for a rescue that would give eternal life? What would it take for a sacrifice that would rescue us forever, not just for one evening? Well, the world wouldn't have enough lambs, would it? This would take a sacrifice of infinite worth. An everlasting sacrifice that could stretch through the whole of history and on into eternity. And no mere man, however holy, however good, could ever provide that. Now the Lamb of God must be God himself. Which is exactly what we read, isn't it? Exactly with what uh, John is presenting to us. Even in the other parts of that passage, the house of David will be like God. Like the angel of the Lord. Well exactly, we see just that, don't we? The house of David, Jesus, the son of David, is God, is the Lord. What's happening on this day? Well, it's a day of great salvation, isn't it? For the people. The destruction of all their enemies and God's enemies. So this isn't looking forward to another day, if you like. This is an Old Testament prophet's way of looking at the cross. Describing it in terms that the original readers would understand. Because on the day, on that day we're reading about, on the day when Jesus died... On the cross, a great salvation was achieved. And on that day, God's enemies were defeated. The devil was vanquished. Hell was overturned. Death lost its sting. 
I mean, when you read Matthew's Gospel, for example, in the sort of same slot, he tells you that dead people rose as Jesus died on the cross. And they're both telling us the same thing in different ways, aren't they? It's the death of death in the death of Christ, as a man called John Owen put it. Death, hell and sin are now subdued, as Charles Wesley put it. We have nothing to fear. Our enemies are but husks of their former selves. They're snakes without fangs, barks without bites, tails without stings. It's easy to forget that though, isn't it? As they bark, as in their death rows they shout all the louder. They trick us into thinking that they're still in charge, that we must obey them as we used to. But as Jesus dies on the cross, our enemies are defeated. They're vanquished foes. They cannot take for us what God has given to us. Christ is our Passover lamb. Well, why is John telling us all this? Well, finally, uh, in verse 35, that you also might believe. Have a look at verse 35 back in John's Gospel. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, that you also may believe. You see, John, as he writes this, isn't just telling it to pass the time. He doesn't want to write a bestseller, if you like. That's not what he's doing. He wants us to believe what he's telling us. And his evidence is those Old Testament passages that we've read. He presents them to us and says, look, this is written in the Old Testament, but I saw these things. I was actually there. I mean, he's saying, I I saw these things fulfilled right before my two eyes. It's as if he sort of presented them to us and saying, what are the chances of this happening? I mean, if his bones weren't broken, then he couldn't be the Passover lamb. Sorry, if his bones were broken, he couldn't be the Passover lamb. If he wasn't pierced, how could he be the one that was mourned over? And if you think about all these things that John is presenting to us as evidence, they weren't even things within Jesus' control, were they? If you think about it. Humanly speaking, Jesus couldn't decide the date and time of his death. He couldn't choose to die at Passover. He couldn't decide that the soldiers wouldn't break his legs. He couldn't decide that his body would be taken down before morning. He couldn't decide to have his side pierced. The last three of those things because he was dead at the time when they happened. And think about it. Who did these things? It wasn't his disciples, was it? It wasn't as if he told them to do this after his death. No, these things were done by his enemies. It was the Jews who demanded the body. It was the Roman soldiers who pierced his side rather than break his legs. You might have some control over your friends, but over your enemies? Really? And yet God, in his sovereign plan, used them to provide the very evidence that he's the Lamb of God. That he's God himself. So John wants us to be really confident that this really was the man. This really was the Lamb of God. So really we're left with two options, aren't we? Either John made the whole thing up, but if he did, then so did Matthew, so did Mark, so did Luke, so did Paul, who called him our Passover Lamb. So did every early Christian who celebrated the Lord's Supper. In fact, it was so integral to the fact that Jesus died at Passover that the very memorial meal that we share is a Passover meal, isn't it? A form of it. 
So integral is this to the fact that he died at this time that Christians have celebrated Easter at Passover for the last 2,000 years. Even if they disagreed exactly when Passover is, which is why you get two different dates sometimes. So either John is barefaced lying, but then so are Matthew, Mark, Luke and Paul, or John is telling the truth. These events really did happen, as John is saying. Jesus did die as he's saying that he died. He did thirst. He was pierced. And John claims to be an eyewitness. He claims to have been there. Seen it with his own two eyes. And he wants us to come to the same conclusion that he has. That Jesus died as our Passover lamb. That he died to complete his rescue mission. That's why he devotes a third of his book to this. That's why he's written this whole biography or thanography of Jesus. So we've got to think through as we read this, do we share his conclusions? That this is really what happened? And then do we share his conclusions that Jesus died as our Passover lamb, bearing our sin on the cross? Well, let's pray that God would help us uh, to believe and understand this. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for the cross. Thank you that on the cross Jesus died there as our Passover lamb, paying the the price that we couldn't pay. Uh, Father, bearing the punishment that we couldn't bear. And Father, thank you that if we do just look to him, if we do just believe in him, that blood is as if it was over the doorposts of our life. And Father, pray that that would help us to know that we are secure, not because we are good, but because Christ has died. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.